Hello, literacy leaders and champions. Welcome to the first episode of Literacy Talks. We're so excited to welcome you to this new podcast series from Reading Horizons, dedicated to exploring the ideas, trends, insights, and practical issues that will help us all improve our professional practice in teaching reading. Our series host is Stacy Hurst, professor at Southern Utah University and chief academic officer at Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Joining Stacy are Donnell Pons, a recognized expert in literacy and special education, and Lindsay Kemeny, a Utah-based elementary classroom teacher. Today's topic is sight words, sometimes referred to as high-frequency words. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Stacy Hurst, host of Literacy Talks, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, I'm Lindsay Kemeny. I teach second grade. This is, I think, my 10th year teaching. And I'm also a mom uh, to a, a child with severe dyslexia, which has kind of guided me along my journey or started the journey, I should say. Great. I am Donnell Pons, and I have been around for quite a while, kicking around for a while, I guess, in the world of literacy. <laughs> And came to the world of literacy because I have a husband who has dyslexia and went on to have two of my four children who have dyslexia. So clearly the struggling reader was the area of interest for me. And I currently work in a workplace literacy program, working with adults who have entered the workplace and still need help with basic literacy. Today, we thought we would talk about something that has been actually showing up quite a bit in conversations in social media and teacher groups, and that is the ever-elusive sight word. (laughs) I don't think it's really that elusive anymore than Kevin's, but um, we're going to start with just some conversation about the definition of that term and kind of just have a conversation like we do. Well, I can tell you what I used to think sight words were, and that may be an incorrect definition going around that's pretty popular is a sight word is a word that you can't sound out. Have you guys heard that? Mm -hmm. Which is incorrect and not really the way we want to be teaching them. Right. So true. And I make sure my college students know that that is no longer an outdated definition of the term. And I think, so this kind of got me, I was asking the two of you earlier in the week because my copy of the Reading League, a little research had come out. And it had an article on this by someone we all respect, and Dr. Nancy Mather, and she's also co-writing this with Lynn Jaffe. And she said the term sight word, she quoted And I'm going to quote her directly. The term sight word is used in three ways in schools. And Lindsay just mentioned one, and we've Mm -hmm. been talking about this. High frequency words like it, the, said, she, those are her examples. Phonetically irregular words was bouquet. Orthographically mapped or instantly recognized words, a student's sight word vocabulary. Those are the three ways in which they're used. However, she says in the article, is interesting. researchers in the area of orthographic learning use it in one way. A sight word is a word that has been previously encountered typically multiple times and learned to the point that it becomes instantly recognized. And that's the one way they refer to it. So it's very interesting, right? The confusion of a term that's so important. Absolutely. And it's kind of become a little bit of a shibboleth too, for those of us who have a history with knowing the science of re- that goes into reading, teaching reading and learning how to read and those who are just coming to it. And so I think it can help us help each other as well. If we have a colleague or a friend that's using an antiquated definition or use of that, it's a good opportunity for us to help have a conversation. So Donnell, in your experience with your older learners, I know sight words are quite the focus in K3, especially K2, I would say. 
but what has been your experience with older learners? Yeah. <laughs> so typically with the struggling <laughs> reader, if they have dyslexia, sight words have been a bear. Not so much that they can't eventually get to a level of comfort with reading them in, in text, right? Because they see them so often. A lot of, if we're talking about a sight word as one that we see a lot, right? We should be- So yeah, maybe we readily, should say yeah, a define, frequency word, right? Exactly what we're defining yeah. here. So yeah. for me, that's what I'm thinking of is a most uh, high, you know, a re- word that they see very frequently in text, right? And oftentimes those overlap. So let's be honest here. When when I'm reading through the definition of high frequency, phonetically irregular, and orthographically mapped, those can overlap, right? right? Sure. Sure. So I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from, too, is there aren't strict boundaries between each of these uh, categories of words. And more importantly, I think that I'm getting from Dr. Mather is just having an understanding when you're having a conversation or when you're teaching your understanding of what it is you're doing and what part it plays in the teaching that you're doing. So I think that's really important, too. So lest anyone feel like, oh, dear, I use that term. Think about how you're using it. And yes, they do overlap, right? So that we need to be thinking that way too. So for students who have dyslexia, the older student, a lot of these words, as we say, they're high frequency. They see them in text a lot. So they may be able to decode them when they see them in text. But the spelling of many of these words, some of them are some of that irregular, phonetically irregular. So the spelling eludes them. And that's really interesting. Of course, if you know the understanding of dyslexia, then you understand why that happens, why that can happen. Someone can decode that word. And then later you'll say, oh, go ahead and let's write a sentence. We're going to use that word. And if they haven't seen it, they can struggle with spelling the word. Yeah. Thanks for that context. And I think it is a good way to help us focus on kind of the history of that, because what you just described is what can happen if we don't approach that in the the most appropriate way for how our brain learns to read, right? In our initial instruction. So the history of those high-frequency words is really interesting. And we have commonly a dolch list and a fry list. And most, especially most early elementary educators will be very familiar with those lists. I know that in the curriculum I've been involved in helping to create, we chose to use the fry list. It's in, it's reflected in many state standards. Teachers are held accountable for those words. In the early text, they can they can comprise up to 80% of what a kindergartner sees in a book. So that can absolutely impede fluency if they don't know those words. And so I think that's kind of what fueled the practice that we see today of the flashcards and you just have to memorize them. And if you know those, you can be a fluent reader. And Lindsay, I'm thinking of your blog post about swimming. Mm-hmm. And how that's the very practice that can make it appear that our students are reading when they're really not. And so actually, when I was being taught how to teach reading, that was the common approach. Lindsay, what about you? Yeah, so it was definitely, there's this idea that, oh, these, you just have to memorize these as a whole unit. So you just need to memorize these. And I just remember sending lists home because really I depended a lot on the parents to help the kids memorize this list of district required high frequency words. And then what did I do in the classroom? I kind of, you know, we did little songs, not that those were terrible, but it never really crossed my mind to let's, let's really think about connecting the letters and the sounds. And it was more like, okay, I had a little song, T-H-E, T-H-E, that spells the, you know, (laughs) I can't believe I just sang on the podcast. I'm not a singer. And so every time when my little kindergartners came, they're reading their little book and they got stuck on that word, then I would start singing T-H-E, that spells. And I'd wait and they'd be like, ah, and I'm like, yes. And there's like a limit 
to how many words you can actually memorize. Like I want, don't quote me. I've heard 2000. Is that right? Do you guys know? Yeah, There's a range, but yeah. And it maxes out about the time we get to third grade. So that yes. makes sense. And mm. you can see these kids that are really good memorizers, really good guessing from context. You can really see them like when you're looking and analyzing, like I use a cadence, right? For screening measure. And you see that their words correct per minute isn't too bad, but their nonsense words, awful. And and that's when you're like, oh my goodness. And we've got to catch those kids before they move on to third grade. Do you know what? Just to add to this point, because I'm having a flashback and yes, I'm calling it that. I was actually administering a devil's assessment to a first grader. And this is what I heard from her after, you know, we do the whole script. Okay, ready, read. And this is on the oral reading fluency part. So she takes a deep breath and then I hear and the over it. And I said, wait, what, what are you doing? I stopped her and she said, my teacher said just to skip the words I don't know. And I'm like, oh, so obviously she'd been teaching those high frequency words and the uh-huh. student had memorized them, but she was not applying any orthographic knowledge to that text at all. She was not connecting anything other than what she had memorized in those high frequency words. And then when you were talking about the song, you had, yeah. I had a saying for the word that it was T-H-E and you can't trick me. <laughs> so we did that too. <laughs> so you'd say that. Yeah. yeah it's just say that. But do you know, I fully embraced the concept of a word wall to teach my high frequency words. My word wall consisted of words words from the fry list in order of frequency. And they were listed in alphabetical order as word walls are. But we had this whole ceremony every week. On Monday, we'd introduce the five words of the week and they'd go at the front of the classroom and we would use them in everything we could. And I'd put them in the context of a sentence and we'd have a spelling test on Friday. And after that test, those words would ceremoniously become part of the word wall. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that my students were really learning them the way they should have, right? That was not the best approach. And so Stacy, you can see why as an older person, all you'd be able to do really with those words is be able to read them in text, right? But they're not really yours because then Mm -hmm. when you want to write a sentence that uses many of the same words, you can't spell it correctly. You're spelling it four different ways, right? So let me tell you what happened as a result of that, that I think really highlights uh, how far we've come as a profession in reading. I was being observed by a university professor one day in my classroom. And one of my students was writing a story during what we did at the time, which was writer's workshop. And he needed to spell the word that. And he knew right where it was on the word wall. And he literally looked up at the word wall, which was huge, by the way. It took a lot of real estate in my classroom. (laughs) And he went to find the letter T. So he knew it started with T, but, you know, we'd had a week. We had a ceremony. (laughs) But then he goes like, he pointed to each word, one, two, three, down the T wall. And you could see him counting one, two, three to find the word that. He had memorized where it was so that he could use it in his writing. Here is the thing that I wanted to illustrate. I was praised for that because my professor said, that's amazing. You're teaching them how to use the word wall. And he used it as a reference. (laughs) And I thought, you know, oh, great. I have arrived, but I should have known better. I have like, okay, I have my own kind of thought. This is my own theory. My son, the one with severe dyslexia, we did that kindergarten list where he memorized those just visually, right? He just kind of, we just memorized the word as a whole unit. He never orthographically mapped the words. Those words, I feel like he still mixes up. Said and and. 
he still mm-hmm. will, when he sees said, he'll say, and when he says, and he'll see said, and I just think, ah, he was never properly taught those words. He hasn't mapped them. So I think that's why, because he just yeah. looked at them as a visual unit, which is not how we read. I don't have a lot of memories of struggling learning how to read because I was one of the maybe 5% that it seemed like it came naturally, though we know it didn't. But I remember confusing and and said, and I think early on, I was looking at it like that as well. So even proficient readers, we're not helping them. You can see it too in those kids, like they go to write a word that they've learned and like even just, I don't know, is went to high frequency word and they go W-N-E-T because they haven't really, you know, they just are memorizing this random string of letters. Like that's what my son is doing is memorizing this random string of letters and then he sees them. It's like four and from almost get mixed up too. Instead, we need to help them, even if they're irregular, to match the irregularities with the sound that they're Mm -hmm. representing. That point, it's a working memory assessment, not necessarily orthographic mapping. So Lindsay mentioned something. She's talking about orthographic mapping. So that may be unfamiliar to some, right? So having a discussion of what some of these terms mean. And that's important, too, within the article that when we were talking about the term sight word even. Now, they also mentioned orthography, orthographic. What are these terms? What do they mean? And getting kind of our feet under us. And Erie is one of the individuals, researchers that's responsible for a lot of the research that a lot of people point to when we're talking about orthographic mapping, mapping those sounds to the graphemes. But what's interesting is she says here in her article, a pool of sight words is referred to as an individual's sight word vocabulary or orthographic lexicon. So that term is also appropriate. The point here is that a word's letter sequence must get mapped onto its sounds and meaning in long-term memory. So that's the work of Erie, right? From 2007 and 2014. And so that subsequently when the word is encountered in text, the reader recognizes it, triggering both its pronunciation and its meaning. So we got the research that gives us that information to our understanding of that. But then what is orthographic mapping? And she gives a a, a definition, which I think is really good. In this developmental sequence, phonemic awareness is a necessary foundation on which orthographic memory is built. Because boy, is that another term, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Phonemic awareness. (laughs) So they're all, here's the convergence, folks, of all the terms, right, that are coming together. So that phonemic awareness, the understanding of the sounds, the ability to be able to manipulate them, hear them, manipulate them, do what you want with them, uh, that is the foundation of what we're talking about here of the orthographic mapping. It's yeah, a process that's really that happens true. in the brain. So right. sometimes people want to say we're doing orthographic right. mapping, but that's <laughs> facilitating it. Yeah. In our instruction, we can facilitate that happening. And I appreciate that context on LB, especially among the three of us. We know what we know, but we sometimes assume other people know it or we assume we know. But I I want to then define, let's put a fine point on what we are referring to when we say sight word. We're saying any word that you can recognize as sight. There's like an article who who said every word wants to be a sight word when it grows up. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good way to look at it. And what Donnell, I don't know, but I like that. That's a yeah. good thing to remember. What Donnell just described too, she read from the article, is really important to know because as teachers, that's how we facilitate it. Mm-hmm. And Linnea Airy did a lot of that work. David Shear is a mm-hmm. colleague of hers. And he also added to that, and I am being probably far too simplistic in this explanation, but she actually helped us to know how orthographic mapping is facilitated and what is actually happening in the brain when anyone recognizes a word right away, seemingly right away. And so she's saying to build that lexicon, we need to 
map. So connect the sound to the spelling for that sound. And as we know in English, there are over 250 spellings for those 44 sounds with the, and we have 26 letters to do that with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So teaching phonics is not a question here. It's absolutely necessary. And so when we're teaching using a approach that facilitates orthographic mapping, there are some phonetic elements that we haven't taught yet. So as we're teaching that mapping those sounds, there are some features of those high frequency words or whatever word we're teaching that will be temporarily um, mapped in a way until we teach the phonic approach. And then it will help kind of make it make sense. And then David Sher has helped us to learn that our brain is keeping track of all that data. And as soon as we've had the typically developing reader needs three to five opportunities with that pattern within that word, and then it will be automatically recognized in the future. So that's exciting for me to know as a teacher that there's something I can do to help facilitate that. We really are changing brains, right? I'd love to talk a little more about, so what's the takeaway for teachers? How do they then teach a high frequency word? And big takeaway is we don't want to teach them as whole units and we don't want to encourage them to memorize them visually. We want to help teach them in a way that's going to facilitate this orthographic mapping that we're talking about. What I do now is I'm going to say the word and we're going to segment the word orally together before I've even shown them the word. So if we have said and we're going to and then we put, you know, you can put place markers or lines up on the board representing the different sounds in the word. And then we're going to map it. What's the first sound? And I can show them the spelling. What's the next sound? And what's the last sound? And then I can show them that AI. Look, they love to analyze it. Which one is tricky? You know, which is the tricky spelling? And we highlight that. And I just, I don't know. My kids love tricky words. They're so excited for the challenge. We practice writing and spelling them because if they can spell it, they can probably read it. So Lindsay, I love how you've just described how you took research and reading about what's good practice and then put it into classroom. What does that look like when I'm in my classroom? So in the article, which is interesting, she's laid out some of the key points of really good instruction. And Lindsay just described that by a doing exercise. Here's what you actually do in your classroom. And so she said a good initial sequence of instruction for spelling would be A, providing instruction in phoneme blending and phoneme segmentation. So you're preparing the sounds, right? Then B, using tasks and materials that reinforce the connections between the phonemes and graphemes and then involve the accurate sequencing of sounds, your description of analyzing as you're looking at that, teaching common letter sequences, letter patterns, and morphemes, and reviewing and practicing spelling rules. So all of those, it was interesting in in a very organic way, Lindsay, as a teacher or educator in her classroom with a firm understanding of what this should look like, then described an exercise. Yeah, Which is why knowing that science is so important Important, so important, right? If you know that, you can make such informed decisions with a high level of confidence of the outcome. Yeah. And so you're not relying or over relying on a curriculum or making stuff up as some of us have done in the past by necessity. I love that. And now we're focusing on what we should do in our instruction. What would you two say we should stop doing in our instruction related to this? Telling students they need to memorize lists of words (laughs) right away, right? (laughs) It did not take you any time at all, Donna. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, is like, I would send the little lists home and when they passed them off, then they'd bring them back and they'd get the next list. And so, you know, I'm like, yes, I'm differentiating. They're kind of all on their own list. But the thing is, is that I couldn't control how the parents 
we're teaching them. And absolutely, the parents are teaching them generally by sight, like by just memorizing it because that's repetition. Yeah, yeah, the the repetition of it and without. So I think if you want to send a list of practice home, it's got to be um, words that you have already introduced and taught, right? And then we know that some kids need lots of repetition before they learn that but beyond three and five times for yeah. their statistical learning yeah. yeah so before I might just keep saying oh remember this one oh s you know s-a-i-d yeah. what is it instead if they're still struggling I might say oh remember the ai is going to represent eh in this word what's what's the word and they're gonna blend it again and just give them more and more practice too as educators we know there's always more to learn Want more information about bridging the gap between the science of reading, research, or practice? Visit readinghorizons.com slash reading resources. And while you're there, we invite you to dive into other topics from our Literacy Talks podcast series. So I would recommend too, I don't know if this is a stop or a start. I'm having a hard time framing it as a stop. So I'll just go with start. We need to probably start reframing Mm-hmm. The way we look at those high frequency word lists, they are important, but over 85% of them, if you're teaching with a systematic explicit phonics program, become what we would call decodable, decodable or recognizable. Yeah. You're teaching that or the graphing, phoneme mapping in yeah. Yeah. phonics instruction. Just the, the districts mandating a certain amount. Like I have heard the most, I don't know, like oh, depressing yeah. numbers I'm where they're sure. like in kindergarten, they have to have a hundred words, you know, yeah. oh, by yeah. or 200. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And I'm just, and then the poor teachers because oh, yeah. that's put on them and they're just trying to fulfill the district requirements. So I think that's probably the biggest stop is having this large amount of words that we're requiring them to and memorize. So Stacy, I think this brings us back full circle again to the beginning of the conversation where we were we were going over definitions of what it is we were talking about, right? When we talk about right. a sight word yeah. and how that definition, right? Yeah. How the definition can help inform what it is we're doing with those words. And so how we teach them and the interaction the student is having with those words. So again, I think those definitions are critical and how they might overlap as we talked about before. How, how do I see some of the these definitions of the words overlapping? And then am I teaching them appropriately? Are the students being introduced to those words appropriately given my understanding of those words? Yeah, so again, exactly. I think the definitions are so important in understanding exactly what we're talking about. So the term sight word is used in three ways just to reiterate in schools, high frequency words like it, the, said, she, phonetically irregular words, was, bouquet, and again, these can overlap as we said, orthographically mapped or instantly recognized words, a student's sight word vocabulary. And remember, that's the term that researchers are going with, right? That's the way they're looking at it. So we need to So we can safely say from those descriptions, and check me if I'm incomplete on this, that a sight word is actually the product. It's the end goal. It's not an approach, right? It's what we're going for. Like Lindsay, you said every word wants to be a sight word when it grows up. That's the goal. So what we do as teachers, whether it's a high frequency word or a phonetically regular word and a high frequency word or irregularly phonetic, then our approach to teaching those words, A, phonics is critical. Linnea Aries helped us to really highlight the fact or know that phonemic awareness is critical and we need to connect the two. We need to map the spelling with the sound and the sound with the spelling. We think about that four-part processor that we have learned so much about in recent years 
And that really is critical to all of that, tying it to the meaning and then able to um, put it in the context that we're reading it in. And I would say too, it's, it might seem like a slow process at first, <laughs> but it is not really once um, a brain picks up on those patterns and that, that method. Well, and everyone's different. You're typically developing readers are going to, they have four encounters with the word and they have it. It's a sight word for them, but others take many more. And I've heard, (laughs) I've heard different numbers on it. I've heard 12 to 17. I've heard a hundred. I need to look it up. Do you know what? I did some research in my first grade classroom on the, like some action research. I didn't take a deep dive, but one of the books that informed my early practice along with the first grade studies was a book written by Bill Honig, who is one of the co-authors of the core books. And it was teaching our children to read, I think is what it's called. It, I think it might be an obscure book. I don't see it. I don't see people referencing it, but it was short, <laughs> but it was dense. And one of the that's where I first learned about the self-teaching hypothesis or the fact that three to five encounters with the word. And that's the student working through it, not us telling them the word, right? So I took that to heart. And I did notice that even with my magical word wall words, (laughs) my students were getting them in a relatively short amount of time. Most of my students, some were not. And with one little kiddo, I still just have fond memories that are so cute. She's probably like 30 now, but she's a first grader in my mind. But I actually started tally marking how many. It took her her entire kindergarten year to recognize the word the. And so I wanted to know, okay, if I know that this takes a student a hundred times with this word... (laughs) then it will help me plan instruction, which I don't think was entirely efficient either. But her average at the end was like 36. Stacy, it's interesting. interesting what you were observing in the classroom from the research is typical readers with accurate and efficient phonemic awareness and phonic decoding ability automatically create orthographic images of decoded words in memory. So a lot of the students, as you say, we were witnessing this and readers with a weakness in the ability to process orthographic information are less likely to perceive the orthographic pattern initially thus no stable memory for the letter sequence is established. So that's what you're seeing with the other group of students, right? Even if they have seen it multiple times, as we've talked about, before that word does not register as familiar or activate its pronunciation. So consequently, they depend on sounding out words for identification and acquire sight words more slowly, read less fluently, and spell words phonetically. And you're reading that right from the article. So we recommend everyone to get a copy of the most current journal. And do you know what else was interesting to me in retrospect? Now I look back and I say, you know what? I should have been doing more phonemic awareness with that girl. I did phonological awareness with her. I remember that. But I wasn't as focused in my phonemic awareness instruction. And I do think the other thing that she ended up repeating first grade and then having a classification of intellectually handicapped. So that might seem discouraging, but it's not. Even somebody with that classification can learn words. Yeah, it takes more time. But as Linnea Airy has helped us and others, Mark Seidenberg and many others have helped us to learn that it's the same in any brain, that what ends up happening, (laughs) the way it connects, it just might take longer for us to get that input. So start connecting phonemes to the graphemes. Start drawing students' attention to the irregular parts, keep using phonics instruction, keep using phonemic awareness instruction, rethink those word lists, and don't worry, you're still going to meet the standard that your district or the state or even the Common Core state standards are are saying we should meet, and they're, even when they refer to lists, right? You'll do it with that approach. I mean, teaching reading is complex for sure. <laughs> it's hard to summarize something as important as that. 
Anything else? Parting thoughts? No, just thanks for listening. And yeah. Yeah. And we would love to hear from you too. We'll save for another time. It's usually Lindsay and I, I don't know if we're just um, contrary or what, but we usually get in these healthy debates about particular things. (laughs) So one of our recent debates was about which order to teach the irregular parts. (laughs) Oh yeah. This approach. Yeah. We can save that for another time. And but, I don't um, recall making that yeah, discussion they, any easier for either of you, Stacey. So. <laughs> I think it yeah. was a three-way argument. Well, I think because I think it's a different, I don't know that there's a right way. This is a question. We can just put it out there. We can just posit it and see where it goes. So I think I referred to Dr. Kilpatrick has talked about this approach, the heart word approach, oh, yeah. and they do it this way. So I don't think I questioned it. It made sense to me. That you would map each grapheme to the phoneme that they know that they've been taught. So, for example, in word said, the regular parts of that word would be S spelling the sound and D spelling the D sound. And then you teach the irregular part. So that's how I've been doing it. <laughs> and, and my position is left to right, left to right. We're going to go do the sounds from left to right because I, I want them to learn to look through the words that way and not their eyes jumping around everywhere. And <laughs> and I, I saw one time, I, I saw a teacher like demonstrating this and she's like, it was a three syllable word and she started at the last syllable and then the different sounds within the syllable, oh. she was showing in order and then, you know, not showing some. We'll do that one in a minute. And then the middle. And then, so I just think it's, to keep it left to right and then I was watching I was watching the the reading leagues summit annual conference conference, Mm -hmm. and Dr. Heidi Beverly Curry was doing a little demonstration and she did it my way (laughs) (laughs) oh no it's your way or my way (laughs) she did it left to right and so I had to text Stacey I was like oh well guess what she just did So our goal is to find the researcher with the most credibility and see how they do it, right? And settle this once and for all. I don't know. I don't know that it matters, right? (laughs) I know. Overall, no. It's like whatever simple. And I could see it going, uh, oh, let's wait and do d. Mm -hmm. And then I could see that, but I think it can get complicated in other words, which is why I think just keeping it left to right kind of simplifies things because... And yeah. I think if we had benefit of some research in this area, we might see that as a combination, depending on the length of the word and what, what yeah. the parts of the irregular parts of the word are. I think that might be more where the yeah. interest in the Do you know what? Is. Just as a, do yeah. you know, Linnea Airy, when she's talking about multisyllabic words that are irregular like this, she used a term in a, a research article I read that was spelling pronunciation that would help students remember the spelling. And I do this every time I spell the word Wednesday, still. I say it Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah. that's another question that I have about this. And we will wrap it up by saying, let us know, guys. Do you go <laughs> from left to right? Do you do the consistent parts first and the regular parts last? Do you think it matters? We can also say for another time how this approach applies to multisyllabic words. You make a good point. But we do have a little healthy debate, so we still love each other. And so oh, we do. And I think <laughs> you know there's room for that as we're yeah. all figuring it out, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I we still you'll notice, even with this debate, which is not as big as we might be making it sound, <laughs> is actually both of our approaches are built on sound research. And so we are helping facilitate that process in the brain either way. Because we're pointing out the irregular parts. That's the important part of that process. 
Thanks for joining us today for Literacy Talks, the podcast series for literacy leaders and champions everywhere. Literacy Talks comes to you from Reading Horizons, where reading momentum begins. Join us next time. Oh.